Thanks, brother. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys again. Uh, my family and I, we love coming out here and being with the table. And I was telling Brad that we, each month, we pray for a different church that's in our church planning network and um, in, our, in our presbytery. And we were praying for you guys through the month of October. Um, and so we, we think of the table as family, as, as a part of family. And, uh, and we're glad to be with you guys again this morning. Uh, a couple of things before we dig in on this passage. One, you know, as Brad read it, you, you can kind of see, like, this is a real big picture um, sort of passage here, uh, probably as big as we could, uh, as any of us could, uh, could even imagine. Um, and so that's what we're going to be talking about, is, is the big picture this morning, and talking about God's plan. But for your own reading, like when you, when you leave here, uh, and maybe you, you're doing Bible reading in the week, uh, if you want to connect some dots with what is written here by this guy named Paul, um, go back to the book of Acts and read back through chapters 18 through 20 because that's where we see Paul come into the city of Ephesus for the first time and where the beginning of that church like gets its start. Uh, and it'll help give you a little bit of context of uh, of these words that he writes here to this church that is in Ephesus. The other thing is, is that we, we also have to remember that this, this big picture, God's plan, is, is set in the backdrop of the, the story of the Bible as a whole. Uh, the, the narrative of the entirety of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, uh, which covers basically four parts. Uh, the first part is creation, God speaking everything into existence. The second part is rebellion, that God made man in his own image, Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve rebelled against God and against that relationship, and in so doing, sin and brokenness comes into the world, and the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. The third part of that story is redemption, that God doesn't just leave us there in rebellion. He pursues us, he comes after us, and ultimately he gives us Jesus and in Jesus we have redemption. Paul actually writes those very words. And then the fourth part of the story is restoration. That Jesus is actually going to come again and restore all things and unite heaven and earth again and rip sin out by the roots. So we have to keep that framework in mind as we take a look at this passage uh, this morning, these, uh, these verses that Brad just read for us. And actually, verses 3 through 14, we didn't read 11 through 14, is one long sentence. It's one long sentence. Um, and it's one long sentence that gives us the biggest possible picture and gives us God's plan. Uh, my wife Carrie and I moved to St. Louis, Missouri in 2009 to attend Covenant Theological Seminary. Uh, Brad and I went to the same seminary, and uh, Brad actually grew up in St. Louis, right? Yeah, that's hometown for you. Uh, we loved living in St. Louis. One of the reasons that we loved living in St. Louis is that uh, the Anheuser-Busch family was incredibly, is incredibly generous to that city, and they foot the bill for the zoo, the art museum, the history museum. There are actually places that you can go and tour, like Grant's Farm, and all of it, if you live in St. Louis, is free to you, which is really great when you're in seminary and you don't even have two dimes to rub together. Uh, and so we availed ourselves of as much of that as we could, and one of my favorite places to go was the St. Louis Art Museum. 
Um, and I don't know if this is still true to this day, but back then, uh, the St. Louis Art Museum had the second largest rotation of art in the United States behind the Smithsonian. Not necessarily the largest art museum, but the, 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 the largest rotation of art that they had. And there were two pieces at the St. Louis Art Museum that stuck out to me in my time there. The first piece was by a guy named Winslow Homer. Um, and uh, Winslow Homer uh, was an American artist. And uh, there was this picture that was inside the St. Louis Art Museum that was roughly about the size of my, uh, of my notes right here. And uh, in, in the name of it was called The Perils of the Sea. And in The Perils of the Sea, he took pencil and he drew these, uh, these men and women who were at a dock, like right at the sea, and a storm was coming in. And you had to get like right up on the picture. But when you got right up on the picture, you could see the details with which, uh, with which Homer brought to life and almost put you there in that scene. It was even like glowing and glossy what he could do uh, with just a pencil. And you felt like you were right there experiencing what everybody sitting there right at the sea with this major storm coming in uh, was experiencing. It was intentionally personal. Very, very personal. Another chance, uh, uh, a piece of art that we got to see while we were there was Monet's Water Lilies. They came through St. Louis while we were living in St. Louis. And so we got to go and see Monet's Water, water Lilies, which, are, uh, which is like a conglomeration of a lot of different pictures uh, sort of put together. And we're standing inside of this room looking at, I think it was like five or six panels of Monet's water lilies, and I was doing the same thing that I was doing on the, the Winslow Homer thing. Like, I was going right up to him and looking at him, and I was looking at him and looking at him, and I was thinking to myself, I know I'm supposed to get this, and this is supposed to be one of the most amazing things in the world, but I don't see it. I, I, I don't get it. And there was a young woman who was a painter who was there, and, uh, and she was actually doing some replicas of these panels of the water lilies. So I went up to her. And I said, I, I said, excuse me, I said, I know that this is supposed to be one of the most amazing things that I've ever seen in art. But I'm having a really hard time, and my guess is you can, you can help me out. And she got up from her seat, and she said, follow me. And so she walked me through the end of that room into another room on the back side of that room, and it was roughly probably about 75 yards away. And she had me stand at the back of that room and take a look at all of those panels. And then she said, look at it now. And it was like, boom. You, the light bulb hit. It was so beautiful and so big and fully flourishing. What he could do in taking these small window scenes and blowing them up and creating this incredibly beautiful, fully flourishing picture. Well, what Paul does here in verses 3 through 10 of Ephesians 1 is he kind of brings both of those ideas together. Um, that God's plan, which is the big point of this passage, is shown to us in that it is intentionally personal and is also fully flourishing. So if you're a note taker, like that's our points this morning, that's our trigger points, is, is that God's plan is intentionally personal and it's also Fully flourishing. So let's begin a little bit here with the intentionally personal uh, aspect of God's plan. 
The first thing that you notice as you read through these verses is how completely God-centered all of this is. How completely God-centered and yet personal all of it is. Every action that Paul writes about here uh, is intentionally done by God for us on our behalf, to us and in us. That God is the one who is acting here. Verse 4, the idea of being chosen. God is the one who does the choosing. God has chosen us in Christ when before the foundations of the world, before creation was even spoken into existence. And here's what that tells us. It tells us that God didn't look at you and me and was like, oh man, JP will be really useful for my plan. That isn't, that, that isn't how God operated. He didn't look at you and me and be like, oh man, the skills that they have, like that'll really, that'll really pump me up in my plan and what I have going on. They could be really, really, really useful to me. And the truth is, is this idea that Paul writes about here is not actually something that's new. If we jump back all the way back into the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God's communicating to his people, uh, the people of Israel, and he says to them, I didn't choose you because you were great or big or large in number. I chose you because I love you. I've chosen to set my love upon you. I had one fellow student uh, in, in, in seminary at that passage. She said, she said about that passage, she said, God is saying to Israel, I didn't choose you because you were cute. I didn't choose you because you were awesome. I chose you because I love you. I chose to set my love upon you. And it tells us something about our relationship with God. It tells us that our relationship with God doesn't begin with us. It begins with him. God's the one who acts on us. And it's because of his love for us. And that really should be profoundly comforting. It should be profoundly comforting to us. Because I don't know about you, but my experience of choosing is not exactly wonderful. Like, my experience of choosing takes me back to being in fourth grade on the playground and the last kid who's picked for kickball. Like, my experience of choosing is getting passed over for things that I thought I was really, really good for and not getting that job for being in that vocation or not getting into the school that I wanted to get into. And so God's... God's love being set upon us, he being the one who has chosen us, should be profoundly comforting to us. You see, God's different than the way that we oftentimes think about things. He says, I love you because I love you. I choose you because of my love for you. It's intentionally personal, and it should be very comforting to us. Well, the second thing that we see of God's intentionally personal plan for us is that he actually makes us into something. Verses 4 and verse 7 tell us that God makes us holy, makes us blameless, and makes us a forgiven people. That God forgives us through Jesus' blood. It's very upfront about that. Paul's very upfront about that, that we are made holy and blameless in Jesus. And those two ideas there, the idea of being made holy is being sort of set apart. And being made blameless is a little bit self-explanatory, isn't it? That we are declared without blame. 
Like this is a decided action that God does that is fully and utterly God-centered. That God is the one who makes us holy and blameless and forgiven. And that actually tells us something about ourselves. It tells us something about ourselves. And what it tells us about ourselves is that we're actually worthy of blame. That we're actually guilty of something. But of what? Well, we're guilty of not choosing God. We're guilty of choosing self above God. And that actually takes us all the way back to creation in the garden when Adam and Eve were made in God's image to flourish, to be fruitful, and to multiply and fill the earth and steward over everything that God had made and be in relationship with him. And they traded that for the thought that they could do life better themselves. They traded that for a life of self. And that's what we're guilty of too. The same thing of not choosing God but choosing self. And the Bible calls that sin. That's what the Bible calls that. Sin, you can think of it like this way, is a life that is bent on self above everything else. One pastor in writing about sin here says that sin shrinks our imagination. I love that that image there. Sin sin shrinks our imagination because what it communicates to us is is that in sin, we can only see life through the lens of self. In sin, we, we lose God's perspective on our lives and on the world around us. And what sin does is it takes a hold of our hearts and it takes a hold of our minds. And we only have the space to consider self above everything else. And what God does intentionally, God comes and he opens our hearts. He opens our minds to see ourselves as we really are. To see ourselves as guilty of rejecting him. And then God must be the one who acts on us. Has to be the one who acts on us and for us to make us not guilty. To make us blameless. To make us holy. To make us forgiven. We actually have to have something from outside of us to get into us and to do that very work. And that's exactly what Paul says Jesus does. That Jesus is the one in whom we have redemption. That we have this forgiveness from our rebellion in our life that is bent around self. And that Jesus does that by coming from outside and entering in and living the life that you and I should have lived and dying a death that's actually our death to die, but doing it for us and becoming our sin. By going to the cross and then exchanging his life for ours. And then his resurrection is proof that he did actually live a life that was without sin for us. And Paul is saying that that truth about Jesus and who he is. And what that means about God's plan for our life being intentionally personal. That's not abstract. That's not something that's just like way off out there in the distance. That's actually actually something that's real. That's true, that's actual, that's historically rooted, and it is an intentionally personal thing that God does for us. Well, the third intentionally personal thing that Paul says that God does for us is that he predestines us for adoption. Verse 5 tells us that we are predestined for adoption in Jesus. Again, 
you see, we can't get away from Paul being just incredibly God-centered here. But he's also incredibly relational, too. Because do you you see what he's saying in saying that we're predestined for adoption? God is telling you and me personally, your life is not random. My life is, is not random. That it actually has purpose and it has a destination. And that that destination is actually set by the God who made heaven and earth. And everything that we see, including you and me, and made us in his image. That he sets our lives by his boundaries. And what that destination is, that destination is adoption in Jesus. That you and I get to be sons and daughters to the God who made heaven and earth in Jesus. That we get to be in God's family. That we get to come to God's table. And be a part of his family. And the only way that I can kind of like begin to wrap my mind around all of this. Is is through being a parent myself. Carrie and I have uh, four kiddos. And if you're a parent, parents, you know this. This whole idea of God choosing And God predestining for adoption. It makes sense as a parent because your child does nothing and yet you would lay down your life for them. Your love for them knows no bounds. The love that we have for our children. The the ways in which we look at our children and we're just like, man, I just love you because I love you. Not because of anything that you've done. But just because you belong to me. That's how God sees you and me. That's what Paul is telling us, that that's how God loves us. The ways that we love each individual unique personality of our children, that God sees those same things in us, and he loves us. And I say that recognizing that for many of us in this room, our experience of parental love isn't necessarily that. That oftentimes we grow up in situations and in homes where Love is a very conditional thing. But that's not how God is. God's not like that. God sets his love upon us. And those of us who are parents, if we're honest with ourselves, we're not perfect either. There are times where we don't love our children unconditionally, but based upon what we think that they should do or what they should do. And I'm guilty of that. But deep down, each and every one of us knows how we're supposed to be loved. Each and every one of us knows what real, genuine, unconditional love does look like or should look like because God's imprinted it on us because we bear his image in his world. And he is a God of unconditional love. And Paul's saying that's exactly who God is. To you and to me in Jesus. So parents, when we're guilty of treating our children like our love for them is conditioned based upon what they bring to the table, we got to own that. We have to say that out loud. We have to confess that. We have to confess our guilt that really at the end of the day, we're really just interested in our lives being built around self. And if we can just manage our kids so that they make us look good or whatever that is, 
then we feel like everything will be okay. We got to own that. We have to say that to them. We have to repent to our children and confess and show them that they have a heavenly father who always loves them perfectly in Jesus. You see, Paul sets this intentionally personal plan of God in verse 7. He says this intentionally personal plan of God finds its fullness in redemption through Jesus' blood. That being chosen, being forgiven, being holy, being blameless, being predestined and adopted is all found in redemption in Jesus' blood. I, I remember a number of years ago the first time that I actually read this passage. And I didn't know a whole lot about the Bible at the time. Um, even though I'd grown up in the church, I, I hadn't had a whole lot of uh, Bible reading. And I remember reading this passage, and it just absolutely flooring me. Because up to that point in my life, I built everything in my life around self. <laughs> I built everything in my own life around proving myself, around trying to satisfy my own selfish desires and pleasures, around using others in my life and relationships that I had to make myself feel good about myself, that I was really like full-fledged running headlong into a life that was defined by me and self and what I wanted. And I read this passage and I was just floored, floored by how God looks at me. How God looks at you, how God looks at us. I've been striving so hard in my life to either build my life around self or to somehow gain God's pleasure by my works. What we talked about earlier. And God comes in and floors us on both sides of that thing. Floors us on both sides and says, no, it's not your works. It's my love for you. It's my grace for you. And oh, by the way, the more and more and more you try to define your life by self, the emptier and emptier and emptier that is going to feel, and that is going to be, and it stunned me. In verse 7, Paul says what makes all of this stuff happen. All this stuff happened is something that we've already talked about this morning, is this thing called grace. God acts, God pursues, God changes, God saves, all by grace. You see, God refuses to let us think that our relationship with him is based on anything other than grace. And this idea of grace is, is a free gift. It's the free gift of God's love set upon us. And it brings us redemption in Jesus. It brings us being chosen. It brings us being forgiven and holy and blameless and predestined for adoption, redeemed in grace. And Paul says in verse 7 that that grace is, is according to grace. And the idea there is that grace is something that is appointed to us. And, and the, the only way for me to, to really get at, and, and Paul says it's lavish too, that it's like this overflowing thing. The, the only idea that I have to get at that is it, when I was a, I think I was a, either a freshman or sophomore in high school, uh, I grew up in the South. I know you couldn't tell by my accent, but... Um, uh, and, and me and some of my buddies and our dads went to hike a portion of the Appalachian Trail that skirted along western North Carolina and eastern Tennessee. 
And we had planned over the course of three days to do 21 uh, miles over three days. We were going to sort of do like four on the way in, and we had a place where we were going to stop. We are going to do like 13 the next day, and then another four uh, on the way out. Well, day two hits, and we get up, we get rolling, and we're hiking, and it's a lot of switchbacks and everything. And at the time, it's really, really beautiful. And then we, we get to sort of this clearing in the top, and we're able to take a break and everything. But off in the distance, you can kind of see some, uh, some, some gray clouds, and they're, and, and they're moving in. And we're at about the six-mile mark of our 13 miles. Um, and so we're like, oh, man, maybe we should kind of maybe get going a little bit here. So we start heading out, and then just the bottom falls out, like totally. Uh, and we are just getting drenched and soaked. Our packs are, our, our clothes are, our bodies are. And then we come to, um, we, we, we finish off seven miles in the rain, and we get to the spot where we're supposed to have our campsite. Actually, it's maybe a little bit less than that because it was another mile to get to our campsite off of the main trail. But there's a sign there that says that our campsite is closed due to bear activity. So we can't even go stay at our campsite. And the only way for us to, like, get out of this is to actually have to circumvent and sort of go around. Actually, not circumvent. It actually made, it made the trip longer. So basically, at the end of the day, we end up hiking. We end up hiking 17 miles. Ten of that in the soaking, you know, the rain is just drenching us. Our bodies are just covered in it. It's like we're wearing it. And we come out of we come out of the woods to where our cars are parked and everything. And it's just this gaggle of 14 and 15-year-old boys. And there's this sweet older couple that was there in their RV. And they see these kids coming out. And we're coming out of everything. You know, like we're soaking wet. So we're we're getting all the way down to our skivvies. And um, and they're like, they're like, can we get you guys some hot chocolate? We're like, yes. Yes, we would love hot chocolate, but but it was so we were so wet and we were so waterlogged. It was like we were wearing the water, like it 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 had seeped into our skins and made us heavier and heavier and heavier. Like we were just absolutely soaked and drenched in it. And that is what Paul says God's grace is to you and me. It's like we're wearing it. We're soaked to the bone in it. We can't get away from it. It's lavish. It's overflowing. That's how God's grace is. One pastor put it this way. Grace is like we've gone over a waterfall and we just keep falling and falling and falling and there is no end in sight. God's grace knows no bounds. His grace towards us. His love towards us, we are soaked in it all the way to the bone. But I don't know about you, man, I fight grace. Man, I fight grace. Grace is such a hard pill to swallow. I feel the pressure and even embrace the life of proving self. The life that is built on self. The life of proving my worth. Of earning my place. I feel the weight of that. Do you? Do you feel the weight of that at times? Kids, maybe some of you are in here and you're feeling like, man, that's exactly what it feels like my parents are looking for in me. Parents, maybe that is what we're looking for. And we need to be changed. 
Maybe you feel the weight of a life of proving self at work. Maybe that's actually how your work is. That you just got to keep proving yourself again and again and again. And man, we get really good at telling ourselves that this is what is the most true thing about us too. Is that we have to just keep proving ourselves again and again and again. And man, that's even a temptation standing up here in front of you for me. I fight grace. We fight grace. But what God does in his love for us is he sends us grace. And what grace does is grace invades. And it totally upends the life of proving self. It totally upends the life revolved around self. Grace comes in and it's willing to absolutely stamp out our dreams of proving our worth. And it brings us to our knees And it brings us to see that our worth is not in our ability to prove ourselves. But it's actually in something outside of us. That comes in and declares, mine. Predestined in love. Chosen, forgiven, holy, blameless. Not because we've proved ourselves. Not because of what we've brought to the table. But actually in spite of it. Because of what Jesus has done. Fully acknowledging that we've built our lives around self, that we're tempted towards the life of proving self, looking at life through that lens, and grace invades, and it opens us up to receive Jesus, to receive what Jesus has done, that Jesus actually took our place, yet without ever building life around self, without ever rejecting God, always and only Believing that what the Father had for him was totally and utterly true. And if you're anything like me and you're here and you're realizing that you've built your life totally around self, I feel like this is almost a daily occurrence for me. Grace is so much better. Living in grace is so much better. It's freeing, it's freedom. Knowing that God doesn't love you because you proved your worth to him. But because he loves you because of his grace. Paul says we're soaked in that individually. But he says we're also soaked in it collectively too. As his people. You see what happens is that grace overflows from us to one another. So that we get to come alongside of one another and remind each other of what is true about us in Jesus. That we get to treat each other the way that God treats us like family. That we get to build relationships with each other that are not built on probation of the other person proving themselves to me. But because that's another image bearer of God. And what a privilege it is to get to be involved in each other's lives. Our relationships get to be based on grace. It's amazing what God does. He brings us together in his family. And we get to live that out. And then we get to go outside of these doors. And we get to live that out in our neighborhoods. We get to pursue people. Why? Because God pursued us. We get to love people. Because God loved us. We get to live lives of grace. Because that's exactly how God interacts with us.
It's beautiful. It's hopeful. Grace is this linchpin that shows us how intentionally personal God's plan is. And it also shows us the other side of things of how fully flourishing it is as well too. Look back at verses 9 through 10 with me. That God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Grace makes known to us the mystery of God's will, of God's plan, and that is the uniting of all things in Jesus, all of heaven and all of earth. And this language here of uniting communicates to us this idea of a gathering together of all things, a collecting, a summing up, a, the idea is like putting everything in its right place, where it belongs, where it goes. Those of you who are parents here, uh, any people have Legos at your house? The, 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 only, the only way that I can get at this is we love Legos in our house. Um, and we love playing with Legos in our house. But they come to you in a box and they're all over the place, right? And what do you do with that? You, you put them together and you build stuff the way that it's supposed to be built, right? But also, I don't know about your house parents, but Legos seem to find their way on the floor. And I get to walk around. And I get to step on those Legos. And things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Because that hurts. And so when we gather everybody together, we say, we're going to gather all the Legos back up. We're going to put them back together where it is that they're supposed to be. The way things are supposed to be put together. That's the idea. That when Jesus comes and he, he, he unites heaven to earth, that all things will be united in him. Is that everything will be in its right place. Rebellion won't exist anymore. Sin will be ripped out by the roots. Brokenness will not exist. One pastor put it this way. This uniting of all things is when time merges into eternity again. It gives us this idea of an echo from eternity past that shoots us all the way into eternity future. To the gathering up. To the summing up. To the putting in the right place of all things. Even creation itself. It gives us this cosmic, fully flourishing vision that God has for all things. And that actually bears importance on our present reality. It actually matters for us right now. Because what it does is it shows us that as we follow Jesus and as we live in light of what he has done for us in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, what we become are like these reflective signposts of his work from eternity past that extends all the way into eternity future. From creation, through rebellion, through redemption, and all the way in to the restoration of all things. But what's that actually look like for us right now? How does that actually bear importance on our present reality? I've got two quick things for us. And we're getting close to the end. So if you've got questions, uh, shoot, them in to, shoot them in to Brad. So i got two quick things. What does this actually look like for us? The first thing is this. Pushing back 
on the effects of sin and brokenness in the world. Pushing back on the effects of sin and brokenness in the world. Here's what I mean by that. If you're here and you're involved in the medical community, whether you're a nurse, a CNA, whether you're working on the administrative side of things, whether you are a physician, you are pushing back on the effects of sin and brokenness in the world that we live in when you help people get their bodies better. When you give diagnoses that help people's lives work better and flourish. When you make the experience of when a patient comes in and they're really, really scared. And you smile at them and you let them know that they are someone who bears God's image in his world. You are pushing back on the effects of sin and brokenness in the world. If you're here and you're involved in education and you're a teacher You are highlighting the reality of who we were made to be as those who bear God's image in his world, in creation. And that we were always meant to be learners. We were always meant to be growing. We were always meant to be learning things and seeing how God put the world together and how we interact with that. So when you teach little children and you're teaching them how to learn and you're teaching them how to love one another and respect one another and see the image of God in their fellow classmates, you are pushing back on the effects of sin and brokenness in the world that we live in. If you're here and you're involved in the legal system in some way, whether you're a lawyer or whether you're law enforcement, you are a reflective signpost to the reality that we have a God who is a God of justice. We have a God who is interested in taking wrongs and making them right, and that he fully and finally and ultimately does that in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you have a spouse in your marriage, when you interact with each other and you strive to believe that your husband or your wife really cares more or knows more about whatever it is that you're arguing about, and you strive to lay down your life and to die for each other, you are pushing back on the effects of sin and brokenness that is in our world. You are living out that the the reality of an eternity future where Jesus sums everything up has an effect on your now. If you're here and you're a parent, every single time that you enter into your child's sin or your own sin against your children, you are pushing back against the effects of sin and brokenness in the world. Because ultimately what we're doing is reminding ourselves and reminding our children that when we sin against each other, that's not who we are in Jesus. And that God comes to us and he lavishes grace on us. It's overflowing and we're soaked to the bone. And we don't have to live life for self. We get to live life following Jesus and loving God and loving neighbor. We get to treat each other not with meanness and contempt and anger. We get to treat each other with kindness and love and gentleness and generosity and charity. If you're here and you get the opportunity to delight 
in the birth of a new one or the first time that that little one is brought here to the table and everybody wants to see that little one and smiles. You're pushing back. We're pushing back. We're saying that God is a God of life and he delights to bless us and show his grace to us through children who can do nothing but giggle and smile at us. If you're here and you ever get the opportunity to sit on the deathbed with a loved one, or this is actually one of the things that as a pastor that's one of the most honoring and privileging things that we get to do is oftentimes families will invite us in to be with them as they are losing a loved one, and we get the opportunity to sit down with them. We get the opportunity to sit down and to turn to Revelation chapter 21 and to read to them that there's coming a day when Jesus is going to come back and he's going to wipe every tear away from our eyes. And sin will be no more. Death will not be our reality. Only life. And Jesus will have ripped everything out by the roots. When we do that, we're pushing back on the effects of sin and brokenness in the world. We are these reflective signposts proclaiming the good news of Jesus' uniting of all things in him. The second quick takeaway is this what it looks like for us to bring to bear this eternity future into our life right now, I would also put in the category the power of forgiveness. The power of forgiveness in our relationships. The truth is, is every single one of us has wronged somebody in our lives. And every single one of us has been wronged. Another way to say that is every single one of us has sinned. We've also been sinned against. And Jesus says that the uniting of all things looks like not being defined by our wrongs or the wrongs that have been done to us, but being defined by him and what he has done. The forgiveness that he has purchased in his blood. And what that means is that we are free in and by God's grace to own our sin. To own up to it. We don't have to fear that and have confidence in Jesus and his forgiveness means that we can forgive incredible wrongs that have been done to us. And we can be forgiven of incredible wrongs as well, too. And I want you to know, I, I don't say that lightly. There are wrongs that have been done in this world that are beyond imagination terrible. But Jesus is bigger than any and all of that. And if that stuff has been done to you, reach out to a brother or sister here at the table. Find relationship. Find someone who wants to speak the good news of Jesus into the midst of terrible, terrible wrongs. So I don't want to whitewash that. But I do want to say that in Jesus, you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven of the most unimaginable things. And you can forgive the most unimaginable things, and operate knowing that everything is moving towards Jesus and that there is coming a day in which he will bring redemption to even the worst of things that has happened to us or even the worst of things that we have done. And right now our imaginations have a hard time seeing that, but there will come a day when it will be enlivened and emboldened and Jesus will show us that in him Things are all in all. All of the wrongs done and all of the wrongs done to will be redeemed in the merging of time and eternity again when Jesus unites all things in heaven and on earth. That's God's plan. Intentionally personal, 
and it's uh, it's fully flourishing. All right. Let's see what I've uh, what I've got here. Okay. Okay. Uh, can you speak more about how sin shrinks our uh, imagination? Um, yeah, I think that the the idea the author that wrote that's a guy named Eugene Peterson, um, and uh, uh, and part of what he gets at is that is that what what sin does is it kind of turns us in on ourselves, so that so that it's like it, it, it's like this if you're someone who's here who who like needs glasses to see it's like taking your glasses away, and you you. You, you can't see that which is out in front of you, meaning that we were actually made not for self, but relationship with God and with each other. Um, and, and so sin shrinking our imagination just, just really pushes us inward on ourselves to only imagine that what we think is always and only right, <laughs> what we think is always and only best, and it closes us off, and it closes us in. Uh, and what God's doing in his grace is he's putting those glasses on us to see things the way that he does, that we're actually made for a relationship with him, made for a relationship with each other, and it opens us up. It opens us up to be okay to say, you know what, I might not be right about that. And I might not need to actually look at that. Um, and so it, it helps us to be vulnerable with one another and not closed off and isolated. So it, it opens us up um, in that regard. All right, everything sounds wonderful, beautiful. I even believe it most days. But I rarely feel that love or experience the joy and gratitude you're, you're describing feeling yourself. If we're soaked in grace, why do I feel so dry? Man, that's good. That's a great, great, great question. The only thing, the, the only thing that, I, that, that I know of is gathering together with God's people. Um. You can't miss this gathering. Like, you, you need it. We need it. We're made for it. Uh, God actually tells us that we, we have to prioritize this. Because in here, what we get to do is we get to come and we get to bring to bear on our lives that we live out there the truth of the good news of Jesus. And so as you come and as we sing praises together and as we hear God's word preached and as we confess our sins together and, and come to the table what God promises is he's actually imparting that grace to us. And we're going out, out of these doors with that grace, and that grace is fueling everything uh, in, in our lives. And I think at some level, like, feeling dry in seasons is normal. Sometimes life just keeps coming at you. And all the more, come and be in the presence of God's people where God has promised that he, that he will be. And he will share his presence uh, with you in the midst of his people. But reach out to people and ask people to pray for you in that too. Like that's the other thing that I would say is, is ask people to pray for you. If, you feel, if you're feeling like you have a very dry season and it doesn't feel like you're very, you're very soaked in grace, pray that prayer yourself and ask other people to pray for you. Open yourself up. Open yourself up to relationships. Like risk being vulnerable, which is really hard. Uh, but risk being vulnerable and anticipating that God will actually act in grace um, uh, toward you, which is hard. I know I'm not giving a great answer there. Um, so, all right, let me, uh, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you. We love you. You are so good to us. Uh, your grace knows no bounds. 
uh, and we see it fully and finally in Jesus, would you take that deeper and deeper into our hearts and the places where the gospel needs to go even more and Holy Spirit do this work in us and we pray these things in Jesus in your name, amen.